restaurant and hospitality industry friends and welcome to another episode of while we were waiting a podcast that highlights the funniest most uplifting and sometimes even downright crazy stories from inside the restaurant i'm your host martha madison and i'm her husband aj gilbert Today, we're going to catch up on this week's restaurant news, and we'll be chatting with our old friend, Pierre Larson, another Luna Park alum who is currently the general manager of Bargello Restaurant and District 42 in Asheville, North Carolina. We'll also share our favorite stories about the places we go and the places the restaurant industry has taken us. But first... I have a new game today, Martha. As many people probably know, you have, well, three jobs, but two. You're a restaurateur and you're also an actor on NBC's Days of Our Lives, right? This is true. And I'm always struck at how similar the environments are when I go visit you at set, that being on the set of a soap opera reminds me of a restaurant that's been open for a really long time. So I thought we would play a game kind of comparing how they're similar, discussing how they're different. (laughs) Okay. But first, Charlie has made intro Oh, yes. Cue Charlie's intro music. Who is smarter, mommy or daddy? Let's play a game and see who is smarter. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Compare the different departments in a restaurant to the equivalent departments on a production. Well, I would first say that probably the chefs, the the back of house would be the writers, right? Like the unsung heroes, but the ones that are actually producing all of the content. Okay. <laughs> I, I think that's a fair comparison. Um, I think the, uh, the servers are definitely the actors, right? Like they're the ones that are the face of the business. The, yeah, they're the, they're the face of the product and and interfacing with the people who are taking in the content, right? The expos and bussers and runners are kind of the crew, right? They're the ones that are camera actu- people, sound people. Yeah, they're the ones that's- that are actually like making sure everything goes according to plan. Like they're the ones truly executing the work. Right. Um, the bartenders would be like, I don't know what the bartenders would, they're the one, I mean, maybe they're also actors. Maybe they're the stars of the show. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think the bartenders are the stars. So, okay. So the, okay. Yeah. So servers are ensemble cast. The bartenders are the, the vets, you know, like the, the, the main players and right. the managers are the directors. Yeah. 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 Okay. okay. Now this is not from the general public. This question is from the organization, from management, from owners or whoever runs the enterprise who receives more respect at work, an actor or a bartender? Oh, the bartenders. Yeah, <laughs> Definitely. I mean, my experience as an actor, um, actors, it's very, very much known that actors are expendable, right? But it's really hard to replace an awesome bartender. <laughs> so. yeah. yeah. What did Alfred Hitchcock say yeah, about actors? Actors aren't cattle. They should only be treated as cattle. In which workplace, restaurant or TV show, is the staff more likely to hook up? Hmm. <laughs> I would say restaurants probably. And and mainly because I think it's kind of widely understood that it's never a good relationship to have two actors in one relationship and everyone kind of gets that. But also, you know, people who work in restaurants, you know, they bond in a more deep way, I think in general because 
like we've talked about before on this show, you're, you're constantly thrown in the fire together. You have to have each other's back. You build this rapport and this relationship, uh, you know, through these days of intensity that you spend together. And while working on a soap opera is absolutely intense because you're shooting 125 pages of dialogue every single day, which is like absurd. Um, it's, you get used to it. You get a rhythm to it. So it's not as hard as it sounds once you've been doing it a lot. All right. That was, that was, that (laughs) was it. So I want to know if Charlie thinks I won or you won. (laughs) Oh, we'll have to ask her, but uh, here we're going to play the outro. Who is smarter, mommy or daddy? Let's play a game and see who is smarter. Mommy. So I was listening to a podcast with Mark Cuban today, and he was kind of prognosticating what's going to come of this economically. And it was a little depressing because he said that he expected it's going to be about five years before life gets back no. to where we are. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, the good news is, is, you know, it's a climb out. So I think that when the economy feels really bad is when it's going down. And, you know, as long as it's going up and creating more opportunities and maybe it doesn't feel as bad. I don't know. I don't know if I'm just trying to make myself feel better. But I don't know. I, I still have PTSD from the recession, so it all sounds daunting to me. It doesn't seem fair to have to go through both of them. Um, but one of the things that he said that I was really thinking about is he said that, you know, this is going to lead to a new economic model um, uh, and hopefully a more equitable model. And for anybody who's run a restaurant, you know, one of the hard things is, is that a lot of people that work for us are on the margins financially. And I, you know, we always have to keep in mind that that's what the restaurant is so good at doing is taking people who don't have a lot of opportunity and giving them a a really good job that can lead to more and more opportunity. But it is, it is hard and it would be so much nicer as a restaurateur to be able to work in a higher paying industry, right? Mm Mm-hmm. It's just not possible. I know that it's very easy to say, well, employors should pay people a living wage and what have you, or pay for their health insurance and everything. With we can what see money? Now, <laughs> right. We can see now that restaurants had no money. Right. It's not like there was this big reserve. Well, charge more. Okay. If you charge more, then people will eat out less frequently. They'll spend less money when they do. And we've all gone to a restaurant, looked at the menu and like, boy, this is expensive. I guess I'm just going to get a $20 bottle of wine or something. Right. (laughs) That's what happens. It's not that easy. It's not as simple as just raising your prices or choosing to pay more. It's much more complicated. But in response to what Mark Cuban was kind of challenging, I came up with like seven things, big things that I think would really change the restaurant business, make it more equitable and allow restaurants to prosper. So do you want to hear my ideas? Oh, of course I do, because your ideas are always good. Go. Okay, I'm going to start with the good, juicy, easy ones first. Okay, good. All right. I'm against a $15 minimum wage. You know what I'm for? What? A $20 minimum wage. What? <laughs> <laughs> I think the minimum wage should be between roughly $15 and $20 an hour, depending on the cost of living where you are. Mm-hmm. So San Francisco is expensive. Dallas has gotten really expensive. You know, and and... I don't know how you decide specifically, and it should go up with inflation. And how are you going to do this? Well, here's the rub. We need 100% tip credit. Um, If you are making more than $20 an hour in tips, then you don't get paid. Right. And I uh, I think this is a great idea. I also want to explain just really quick to anyone who's listening who doesn't know what a tip credit is. Go ahead, AJ. (laughs) You want me to explain? A tip credit is the idea that somebody's wage is reduced by the tips that they're making. So in Texas, the minimum wage 
uh, is the federal minimum wage, which is $7.25 an hour. But if you're making tips, you can be paid as little as, I think, $2.35 an hour. And the idea is your tips are making more than $7.25. Most states have a tip credit. California does not. So, um, and, and there's a big movement against the tip credit. But what the tip credit does that is good for society is it allows the restaurant to pay the cooks more. So $20 minimum wage. So cooks, dishwashers, prep cooks are all making $20, probably a lot more for a good line cook. Mm-hmm. Waiters are making their money from the tips, which is why they came to work in the first place. But also something good that the tip credit does is it allows business owners to employ more people because they can afford it, right? Yes. So instead of having you know three servers on the floor on a Friday night because that's all you can afford, you can actually have the six or seven that you need to give good service. And increase your sales and, and allow for a bigger restaurant. Restaurants are really timid about adding labor to invest because it's so expensive, and this would take away that barrier. So there's that lesson on tip credit. Next. <laughs> Next. Restaurants pay for an insurance, which depending on where you are, and again, California is very expensive, called workers' comp insurance. All businesses do. If you get hurt at work, this is what pays for your health care. The problem is restaurants are dangerous places. There's knives, there's deep fat fryers, and restaurant workers' comp insurance can be very expensive. It's basically a form of health care, and we need to include workers' comp in a universal health care program. Amen. I don't have... I, I'm, I'm not, I don't believe that Medicare for all is necessarily the answer. I do believe that healthcare is too expensive and simply asking employers to pay it doesn't solve the problem. When we started Luna Park San Francisco, we were paying $60 a month for Blue Cross Blue Shield for our salaried employees. How much, how much is it now? Well, I just had our family of three on Cobra for $2,000 a month. So, But it has gotten so expensive. You know, there's much smarter people that are going to have to figure out how to bend that healthcare cost curve. But it's not enough just to say that employers should pay for healthcare. It's a much bigger problem. And decoupling it from employment, allowing people to take their healthcare wherever they like, and having a universal healthcare that, again, includes workers' comp. I'm not suggesting that employers don't pay for some of this and acknowledge the fact that injuries can happen at work, and that's part of the healthcare expense. I'm saying let's just put it all in one. Because what happens is, is that an employee who doesn't have healthcare is going out, maybe playing a soccer game or working another job, and they hurt themselves, and then they have to make it into a workers' comp claim right. because that's the only way they can get coverage. And yeah. It is the same thing. It is healthcare, and there's no reason to distinct the two systems. There's also so much fraud involved in workers' comp. I have seen it firsthand. Yeah. Sick pay, time off, time off to care for a family, time off to go to somebody's wedding. We all want to know that we have continuity of income when we have time off. All businesses pay for unemployment insurance. Mm-hmm. Why are these two separate things? I don't know. So, so if somebody gets sick and needs time off, essentially they become unemployed and we're already paying for this insurance program. It's expensive. It needs work, but this is all big ideas. And instead of an employer, a small restaurant that might have 20 employees and have two of them out sick right, and have to pay for the time that they're out sick, it's a huge burden. Group it. Yeah. Yes. Let's amortize the cost through some sort of insurance program that employees can take with them. Mm -hmm. So we do away with, you know, direct sick leave and we combine it with the workers' comp. Good. Breaks. (laughs) Breaks. God damn it, those breaks. Breaks are great. Wait, wait, wait. Explain the breaks though. Not everybody has to deal with that. I'm just going to let that stay. You said you're against breaks. So in Texas, there are no laws about when people take breaks. 
Um, so the, the cooks here don't get breaks. In California, it's, it's an incredibly rigorous system that breaks have to be granted at exactly the right time Every or else there's a penalty. Every four hours. Every four hours. Think about that when you're in the middle of a dinner rush on Friday. I've seen a lot of well-meaning restaurant groups and small restaurants that have had to pay extraordinary fines for not documenting their break time properly. It's just a weapon. It's a weapon to be used against the restaurant owner. And yes, you can quote me saying that because you can see it in the news. People who don't grant these uh, specific uh, breaks at the exact right time automatically give ammunition to disgruntled employees who leave, right? So then the disgruntled employee leaves, they're fired for not showing up to work. They go to, you know, the legal firm of this BS and that BS, and they file a suit saying that their employer did not pay them for their breaks, right? right? I have a client who had to pay out a million dollars, yeah. a and million dollars because of this. Well, everybody I, should I didn't have breaks and I'm fine. It's good for character. I, I had breaks. It was just reasonable. I, you know, there was time to take a break. You did. But what I'm proposing is, or what I'm, I'm not proposing anything because nobody's going to listen to me, but what I'm, <laughs> what I'm putting out into the ether is that, uh, the law says something to the effect of the employer shall grant reasonable breaks to be taken at a reasonable time. Right. And, you know, let people be reasonable. You know, we're all adults. And if somebody feels like they're not getting the break time that they need to work properly, I think we can take care of that. Well, I don't or- think we need it to be scheduled by the law to the hour. And I'm, I'm not saying this because it makes us mad because people have been fined. I'm talking about what it's going to take to make the restaurant business pay more to its employees and be profitable so the restaurants can stay open. If employees are to be paid more, we have to get rid of the, the little tiny things that make it so difficult just to get through the shift. Two big ones, two big hot button issues. We should replace the payroll tax, which goes to fund Social Security, with a carbon tax so that instead of paying extra money for for payroll, which is a good thing, we're paying extra money for energy, which consumption is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And people can concentrate on updating their equipment and making the buildings more efficient. Yeah. It's a big thing. But then you don't have to do the returns and file all the stuff with the IRS, and it would be so much easier to administer the business, and uh, your taxes would just show up on your your energy bill. I just – two things I want to speak to on that. One, I've never understood why we're taxing employing people. It is so bizarre to me why you should get taxed to either employ someone or to have a job. The second thing I want to say is I wish – that a- anyone who's ever worked in the restaurant industry would have to sit down in the office for one day and look at the amount of paperwork we have to file with every different governmental agency to do these simple things. That alone is is probably a, a fifty to sixty thousand dollar a year job. And everybody who you know works at Facebook or you know works at Vassar or something like that, you know, there's a lot of paperwork in every in- employer. The issue is is that restaurants are very small businesses with very small profit margins. And we're seeing now the effect they have on the economy. And wouldn't it be wise to make it better, cheaper, and easier for the restaurants to create all of these jobs so that we can mandate that the restaurants pay these employees more and and that people have a higher standard of living who serve your food so they don't have to come to work sick and they're able to see a doctor. Right. I think the overall point of all of this is that 
you know, if the more it costs to employ people, the less people are going to be able to be employed. And if the goal is to give people jobs, then we have to help the businesses who employ them employ them and keep them employed. And it can't just be, a, you know, a small mom and pop responsible for all of these things. They won't have enough money to to even have it be worth it to be open. It's, yes. you know, the, the opposite will happen. You'll close the business and lay off 50 people. And that is not the desired effect. And I think we're seeing this all over the world right now. I have one more, which is we need to legalize uh, undocumented workers. Undocumented workers make up I don't know, 25, 30, 50%. 50% of, of the restaurant business is undocumented. And to say it any we, other way would be a lie. So that's my proposal to fix the restaurant economy. I'm sure that everything I've said has a negative side that I haven't accounted for, but those are my ideas. Well, I think they're excellent ideas, Gilbert. I appreciate that, honey. Thank you, Speak. <laughs> While We Were Waiting is brought to you by One House Hospitality Recruiters, a full-service hospitality recruitment firm serving all of North America. For more information, check out our website at one-house.com. That's O-N-E-H-A-U-S.com. Okay. Well, now I'm really excited to introduce our guest today. Uh, like I mentioned, he's another Luna Park alum who's currently the general manager of Bargello Restaurant and District 42 in Asheville, North Carolina. Welcome to the show, Pierre Larson. Welcome, Pierre. Hey, thank you. The people that you work for that started these restaurants, they had another restaurant in Asheville as well, right? Uh, correct. It's a Mandara Hospitality that got their start uh, about a decade ago, opening up a wonderful uh, gluten-free restaurant called uh, Pasana, which, um, I mean, it, it took the community by storm, considering there hasn't been a single molecule of gluten in that entire building for <laughs> <laughs> over 10 years. I mean, wow. they, yeah, it's, it's celiac certified. Um, it's a husband and wife team that, that owns the hospitality group, Peter and Martha Palais. And uh, Martha, Martha. Yeah, I know, I knew that was going to come up. I always work, I always work for Martha. And uh, Martha found out she was celiac. So oh, no. Peter said, hey, let's make you a restaurant. You know, and they, that's how they got their start here in Asheville. And it's, uh, it's really been a staple of the community for over a decade now. And what kind of restaurants are these? What are the concepts like? What do you so, guys do? So Bargello is a Mediterranean-themed uh, restaurant. Now, I don't want to say just Mediterranean as a whole. Um, Think of the whole Mediterranean Sea, you know, so mm -hmm. you've got, uh, you know, there's Italian influence there. There's some Greek influence there, you know, spices from uh, Northern Africa, you know, just the, the whole region, uh, the whole sea, you know, taking a little bit, a um, little bit of flavors from all over the place. And then District 42 is, it's the, the bar area, if you want to call it that. It was named after the 42 original plots of lands when Asheville was started. It's a gorgeous space, and really, we're doing elevated cocktails. And I don't want to call it bar food. I want to call it elevated bar food. I mean, for instance, there's a hot dog on the menu, but it's not just a hot dog. You know, there's kimchi. Right. Uh, there's kimchi on there. There's, uh, um, you know, jalapeno cream cheese. You know, thinking outside the box and really making these people happy. You've worked in Austin, Los Angeles, Washington D.C., Asheville. What is, how would you compare Asheville to Los Angeles or some other bigger cities? What what's the dining scene like there? What's the market like? You know, it's it's kind of remarkable. I wasn't expecting the dining scene to be what it was. It, it is really a foodie town with 
like a smidgen of the population of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've got, um, you know, tapas bars, you've got a lot of um, Japanese places are opening. I mean, it's, it's really amazing that there's no one thing, you know, Asheville's not just known for one specific kind of cuisine. It's just a little all over the place, but right. really, really very good, if I could say so myself. You know, that was one of the things that I think surprised Martha and I when we moved to Dallas is you get so fixated on the coastal cities and the, the restaurant cities, and that's just a given. And you get to a city like Dallas, which, you know, is a very big city, but it has great restaurants and a great restaurant community. I think a lot of it's relatively new, but, you know, people all over the country have been sharing and all this. I think Instagram and all that stuff is a big part of it, exactly. the, the food shows and everything. I think there's a whole new generation of people who are interested in food and restaurants because of the Food Network and because of Instagram and, and all the social media stuff that we didn't have really growing up. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that's an un, unbelievable outreach from people using their cell phones. Right. And it's, also it's that remarkable. it's it's totally hip to be into local sourcing and local farmers. And it's become, you know, not just a really, you know, important part of of owning a restaurant, but now it's very trendy. Right. Everyone wants to know, well, where did you get this squash? <laughs> you know, oh, for sure. Yeah. Interviewing the actual farmers like we uh, are one of our chef de cuisine, our, our chef de cuisine, uh, Josh. He took the staff to, when we were opening up, took the staff to a farm so he could just show them, the farmer can show, you know, hey, put your right. hands in the dirt. Like right. This, is right. Right, this is where it comes from, you know, and goes right to you. It's, it's really Demystifying the food chain a little bit. It's not, not that far away. Right, exactly. But I also think that the restaurant industry as a whole is a really interesting thing to do or thing to be a part of. And when you're teaching your staff about all the interesting parts of of the industry and all the, uh, you know, everything that goes into it, it makes them feel like they're doing something really important and meaningful too. Well, no, absolutely. And, and sustainability is a real big term that I hear thrown around in Nashville. I, I heard it before, obviously. And then I moved here and, oh my gosh, it's like every other word that comes out of a restaurant person's mouth is sustainability, sustainability. It's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a hippie town, right? Asheville. It's very artistic yeah. and yeah, it's uh, it's almost like, you know, I moved out of Austin and I moved to Asheville and I'm going, okay, well, this is just a mountainous Austin. Like, <laughs> smaller, you know? Right. Cool, I'll have to go visit. <laughs> oh, it's, it's an awesome place. From the beginning of the year, you start seeing on the news that there's a pandemic in China and you start hearing about, you know, Washington State and such. What, what was your experience there at the restaurant and how this started and kind of took hold? Well, you know, truthfully... Uh, myself, I was a little naive to it. You know, I was, you know, this eternal optimist going, oh man, that's, that's, that's a bummer. Uh, hope it doesn't get here, you know? And, and then you think in the back of your mind, wait a second, we're a tourist destination. People come here all the time uh, just to get away from the big cities. And then you think, uh-oh, it's going to come here, you know, whether you like it or not, it's going to, it's going to make its way here. And then you start realizing, okay, we need, we need to really start taking this more seriously, more seriously, more seriously. And, uh, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, people were protesting in Pack Square, which is the, the town square right across the street from uh, the hotel and the restaurants. And there was a big banner that said, stay home, Florida. And I thought, okay, you know, people are getting a little scared that these uh, people that could potentially be exposed are going to want to get away from those places and then come here. They were asking people not to come and visit and bring the virus with them. 100%. 
it's, it's really, and you know, so you've got an entire industry in, in Asheville, a uh, service industry relying on tourism. Right. And, th- and then you're going, tourists don't come here. You know, wow. and it's, it's, it's scary. It's a scary thought to think, you know, then how are we going to sustain? So when did you guys decide to, are, are you closed? And when did you decide to close? Uh, we are not closed. We, uh, we shut down district 42 because that was the, the bar. Um, Bargello is still open and we had to shift our business model to, to goes and deliveries just like everybody else out there. And did and, you do to go before that? Um, I mean, we offered it, but I, I don't think I could count on one hand the requests we got. Um, and it's dramatically changed. And, you know, we had to really cut down staff. I mean, we're down to bare bones. We're down to just a few managers and a few, uh, sous chefs. What's the status of the staff now? Are they on unemployment? Are they furloughed? They're on unemployment. We, uh, we thought it was the right thing to do to just say, Hey, this is a, this is the situation where we're at. At least you can get some benefits while we determine how long this is going to be when they, we do family meal for the staff that we had to lay off. So two times a week, they can come in and get a meal that we prepare for them for free. That and, is awesome. And they, yeah, it was, that's, again, that comes from uh, Peter and Martha. They're, they're, uh, go Martha. They, go Martha. <laughs> they, they just really want to take care of their people and it shows. And it's not that they had to do this. They wanted to. So I interview people a lot for GM roles and and management positions. And one of the questions I always ask them is, have you ever fired somebody? Because it's a profound experience as a manager to have to let somebody go. And, And I mean, I cannot imagine having to let an entire staff go, not knowing if they're going to be able to come back. What was that like for you? It was a really emotional experience and, uh, not in a good way. It was, it was heartbreaking. Um, I didn't want to do it through an email or a text. So I got my roster out and called absolutely every single employee. And um, spoke Were to they them surprised? On, you know, no, they weren't. I mean, I think everybody was realistic and said, okay, we can see that this is the right decision. And, um, you know, some people had a great sense of humor about it. Uh, one of my bartenders, Alexio, he, uh, he says, so Pierre, technically you're firing me, aren't you? And I was like, well, yeah. He goes, can you go, just say it, man. Can you go ahead and say it? And, and so I'm like, Alexio, that's it. You're done. <laughs> no more. You're fired. And he, we got a big kick out of that. And in fact, we were exchanging texts a couple of days later. He's saying, I'm still laughing at the fact that you fired me in a blaze of glory. And it, it was, it was great. <laughs> So. Well, it's so nice to hear that some people are at least uh, supportive of how hard this must be on you. Yeah, they, you know, everybody at the end, each conversation was, well, thank you. And um, I left the conversation with, hey, I, I really hope in, in a very short period of time, I'm going to get you on the phone again, and it's going to be the opposite. You know, I'm going to bring, um, my intention is to bring everybody back. Good. Well, that's a great segue. What do you, what do you think is going to happen next? What is your what is the business planning for? What are you personally expecting? What what comes next? So what we're planning for is obviously, I mean, let's not kid ourselves. The landscape is going to change regardless. Um, you know, the economy's taken a major hit. So let's say we like flip the switch and everybody's back to work. Yay. Do you really think it's like after 2008, do you really think people in a rough economy are going to be going to luxury restaurants? Are they going to be going to higher end places? And conventional wisdom says no. So you think, okay, do we lower our prices, our price points, make it up in volume? Um, 
kind of similar to what we did at Luna Park at you know 2008. We're saying, what do we do here? Um, that's really the thought. But another thing, I was thinking about this yesterday and the day before. You know, my experience, I've worked for places that are rather corporate. And some places really, you know, you maximize your square footage. You say, how many uh, seats can I have? And that's going to determine my, my forecasting. We're going to have to change our floor plans. You know, you're going to have to distance tables um, just for people to be comfortable. And, yeah. and I, I'm just seeing that happen too. You know, you know we're, we're blessed um, by having not only just hotel uh, rooms there, but also residences. So we've got condos on the, on the upper floors. And those people have been absolutely fantastic. They've, they've come down every single day, had probably three meals with us every day. And then we, get, we got the idea, hey, let's open up our Eurocops and they can go wine shopping with us. You know? Well, this could be a good new revenue stream for you guys. So we went to Uchi in Dallas last night, which is the first time we've done one of these box things. That was so good. It was. And we, we, it was a nice thing to do. Um, and it was nice to not cook. But, you know, we went through their valet station to do our pickup. You don't experience the restaurant in the valet window. And they did as well as I think anybody could have, both from the food they chose to prepare. And, you know, it was very profitable for them. It was also a good value. They, they did great. And uh, it was very flavorful and it was nice presentations. But what do you do with the building? You know, when you're when you're selling food, it, I, that's what I was struck with. And I get the hotel as a whole different thing because a hotel residents, there's there's people there already, and that's a great asset. But I was thinking for Uchi, what what do you do with all that square footage? Well, I was I was actually doing some math on this last night because we went and got a box for two. It was sixty five dollars plus tax, and of course, we left a, a healthy tip. So in all, it was probably around a hundred bucks, right, for two people. I don't think that that's a whole lot less than their general check average. How much did we spend when we ate there last time? We spent like two hundred and fifty dollars. Well, that's because we stayed and drank and all. But that that's, the point. that's, that's <laughs> the point. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I don't think that I don't think that it's. I mean, they're doing pretty well. I think if they had like you know, I don't know. 50 people go in there on a Sunday night. I think that's yeah, they, not terrible. They would, do, they would do something less than $5,000 if they, well, they also know. have like a, a 10th of their staff to pay. I'm just I saying, it. I think what, it might what, what be sustainable do? for a while. And that, I think that's what everybody hopes. And I, I hope so too. I, again, what do you do with the dining room? Nintendo, Nintendo started in like the 1800s making playing cards. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't. I did not know that. <laughs> and then they, in the sixties, they shifted to hotels. Didn't know if you knew that. No. And then, you know, so talk about this innovative company. And then next thing you know, they're, 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 they were constantly shifting, constantly changing. And look where they are now. Um, they're like, well, this is our thing. And they never would have gotten there if they hadn't been adaptable. That's yeah. true. I, you know, evolution is a certainty, right? So it's the people who can do it the quickest that will succeed. Okay, so now I think it's time to switch gears to story time. And this week, we're all going to share stories about how the restaurant takes us places and all of the places we've been. So let's let our guests go first. Pierre, you're up. It's such a big industry in hospitality with that many millions of people. And you come to realize after a, a given period of time, it's really tight knit. You know, everybody seems to know everybody else. And, and you think, how can that be? Because it's so vast. But really, you're in an industry with other people, people. We're almost ingrained to be accepting. Um, 
you know, of, of new faces, because you're seeing so many new faces every single day anyway. After college, moved to LA to uh, be the world's greatest actor. I got a couple voiceover jobs. Um, for some reason, my voice kind of got thrown into science fiction stuff, so I was narrating like UFO TV shows and alien stuff. And um, I was so incredibly talented as an actor that I convinced you guys to hire me as a manager of Luna Park. That was my first management experience. The timing was probably uh, not that good in 2007, 2008. After my experience there in LA, there was a brief stint in Houston as a private investigator. It sounds really exciting, but it's not. I moved back to DC and uh, got a job with Jose Andres uh, working at his Mediterranean restaurant, Satinia. And that was a remarkable experience. Um, he could never remember my name. He always called me Flacco, which means skinny. A couple months ago when he came to Asheville and he was like, hey, Flacco. Jose Andres and Think Food Group were partnered with SBE. So I was able to transfer with SBE to go to San Diego. And I managed a Katsuya in San Diego. And unfortunately, we had to shutter that one. Uh, it just didn't hit our projections. And I got transferred back up to Los Angeles. So it sucked me back in. Vivian and I wanted to start a family. So we moved uh, to Austin and we were there for about five years or so. And, and while I was in Austin, I got to work for um, a top chef, Brian Malarkey. We maintained that relationship as well. If I see him doing something goofy on TV, I'll shoot him a text. Vivian and I realized we are smaller town type of people and we decided to move to Asheville and just reached out and um, through a couple phone interviews and said, all right, this is it rented a 26-foot long U-Haul and drove it across. My big takeaway is, is the people. <laughs> I can't, like every town, I've made a little group of friends, made a little, you know, felt part of the little mini community, and I'm still in contact with all of them. And when I didn't, when I moved to a new town and I didn't do restaurant stuff, I only lasted six months before I was like, I need to get out of here. I have a lot of different families all over the United States, uh, just from all the different towns and all the places I visited and, and, and worked. In my restaurant career, I have opened and been part of the opening team for more than 15 restaurants in four or five major cities. Um, and every one of those opening staffs have become my friends, my family, my best friends, you know, people I still call for advice or mentorship. Um, it's a bond that is probably similar to that of the friends you make when you move to college. So this podcast is about all the places you'll go, just like the Dr. Seuss book, right? Where you go off into the world and try all the scary things and don't get stuck in the, you know, the, the place where there's nothing happening, right? And I think that really has been the story of my restaurant life. Um, 
you know, I always wanted to leave Houston where I grew up. I always knew that I wanted to work in entertainment. Um, and I always, from the day I turned 16, always worked in a restaurant. Um, it was the best way for me to make as much money as quickly as possible, to save up as much money as I could to get the F out of Texas and move to New York. Um, and so I did just that. Right after I graduated from college, I moved to New York. I didn't know a person. I had only been there once before. I was moving into a youth hostel on the Upper West Side. And I just figured, you know, I, I will find a job in a restaurant. And I think that was the only part of the experience that wasn't totally terrifying because I knew I was going to find a job in a restaurant and that would be my family. And in fact, the restaurant I got a job at there first is where I met my very best friend, my daughter's godmother, Megan, who is, um, you know, the closest person to me that isn't a sister, <laughs> you know. Um, and it was from there a great experience. I worked in a lot of restaurants in New York. I, I dated a chef for a while who was very well known at the time and introduced me to all these very important people. And and when I got tired of that scene and got tired of working until four o'clock in the morning every day, um, I decided to follow one of my friends to Los Angeles. And I had broken up with the chef and I was on my own again and ready to get the hell out and go somewhere else I had never been and oh, the places I'll go. And I showed up in Los Angeles, uh, again, only knowing my friend who I'd come with. Um, and I remember going to uh, a friend's house, a friend of my friend, um, whose other friend had just moved to Los Angeles from uh, Tennessee. And she and I met and she said, oh, you should go down to this place, Luna Park. They're building it out right now and it's almost ready. And I think they're hiring people. So I drove over there on my way to a second interview at another restaurant that I really didn't want to work at. And I walked in and met the general manager of the time. Uh, and she offered me a job as a waiter. And I had never waited tables at all, ever. I had only ever been a bartender or a manager. And so, um, but I decided it was better than the alternative and I took the job. The first day of training, I walked in and saw a bunch of people there and realized, you know, this again is probably going to be my family. Um, so I better get to know everyone. And in walked the owner who sat down and gave this long spiel about the training program we were about to do, which in the six or seven restaurants in New York that I had opened and worked at, no one had ever done a full-scale training before. So I immediately was riveted and so relieved to know that I was going to be working in a restaurant that was owned and operated by someone who actually knew how to own and operate a restaurant. And we were doing mock training one day. I was to be the server in this mock a table service that I was going to be the waiter and two of the other waiters were pretending to be the guests. And the owner leaned down into one of their ears and, and whispered something. And they looked up at me and said, can you tell me what single malt scotches you have? And I kind of looked at the owner thinking he was giving me a gotcha question. And I just looked at him having bartended in New York for four years before that. And I named every single malt scotch ever made. <laughs> And he got a little twinkle in his eye and I got a little twinkle in my eye. And that's when I knew I was going to marry that man. 
oh, the places we will go. I think working in the restaurant industry is the very thing that has allowed me to move from Texas to New York to Los Angeles to San Francisco back to Texas because it's it's a constant. If you have the skills and you have the experience having worked in a restaurant any in any major city, you know you'll find your home. You know you'll find your family wherever you go. Martha, you can chime in because we did this together, but I'd like to talk about the story of moving to Texas. And how we found ourselves just about to open a restaurant called The Mayor's House in an old building that had been owned by the mayor in the Oak Cliff District of Dallas, just as the coronavirus shut down every restaurant. Never thought you'd end up in Texas, did you? native Californian. I was born in California. I lived my whole life there and I I love California. So we were pretty much done with the restaurant business. We had wound down our restaurant in San Francisco after Charlie was born. The cost benefit of operating a single restaurant in San Francisco, it just didn't make sense financially for us to do it. I had another business uh, inventory app called Chef Sheet. I had a small office in the WeWork on Hollywood Boulevard and Martha was working on Days of Our Lives and we kind of thought that was going to be our life for a while. But running a web app is boring. Doing sales is not my thing. And doing tech support is not really my thing. And it was just a grind. I was not enjoying it. So we had the opportunity to open Pata Salada. Pata Salada, which was our old Luna Park restaurant. We had sold it. The people that taken it over had failed. And the landlord said, hey, why don't you just take it back and just start paying me rent? Typically, that's a pretty good deal because you don't have a lot of build-out costs. And I think I kind of blinded myself to the things that weren't a good deal about it. I think that the boredom with doing the web app kind of lured me into the Pata Salada experience, which ultimately didn't work out. And we've talked about that on another episode. And I frankly (laughs) don't want to talk about it anymore. Don't want to talk about it anymore. Martha had left Days of Our Lives, was doing recruiting. I was doing the web app, and we were both working out of our house. Charlie was going to need to go to kindergarten, and our local school was not great. Right. And uh, we were paying 10% of our income to the state of California, and it just didn't make sense. It wasn't a good value proposition. So we decided to move to Texas. No intention of opening a restaurant. Martha's family is from Dallas. My career plan was to continue to work on the mobile app. One night, Martha and I went out to dinner and passed a vacant restaurant space. It was a turnkey restaurant, and I was just curious. I mean, I had no idea how we would do another restaurant. So I made an appointment to see the space. It wasn't the space for us, but it was interesting. That kind of started a process. And for anybody that ever wants to know how to open their own restaurant or any business, it really is you just start. So we ended up connecting to another broker, and he emailed me a list of the properties he had available, and they were pretty conventional. And one of them was this house, this old house that was being turned into a restaurant. And I remember getting that email and it was like a 
synapse connected in my brain. It's like, what is this? I was immediately excited by it. I remember you came down the stairs and you said, look at this, I have chills. And to know you is to know you don't get chills. <laughs> Martha was not on board with starting a new restaurant project. And I think that this building, kind of like a wide-eyed puppy, it just reeled her in. It sold itself. This is a wraparound porches, a house built about 110 years ago. From the upstairs patio, you have a panoramic view of the Dallas skyline. I often think that we make shopping decisions with our animal brain. If you're trying to cite any kind of retail, you really have to connect with that part of your brain that kind of works independent of logic. Because when people decide where they're going to shop or what they're going to buy or what they're going to eat, it's often irrational. And I think if you feel that sense of magic when you connect with the space, you should trust that. We were in a new city. We didn't know a lot of people. And again, you just kind of hop from one lily pad to the next. We reached out to the people we met. The building was exciting. It was interesting to everybody. And we just connected with all these wonderful partners that wanted to participate, old friends of Martha's from college, uh, some of them. And we created a group. And in doing so, in moving to this new city where we knew very few people, we created a new group of people for ourselves. As soon as you get into the restaurant community, you start meeting other restaurateurs and you start meeting salespeople and the people that kind of make the restaurant world tick, journalists. And that's all really fun. I can't think of a better way to experience a new city than to open a restaurant there. And it's amazing. Now, we haven't gotten to the part yet where we're going to hire staff and really grow the business because we were closed by the virus. But that's the next part. And God willing, we get there and we get to meet all these new people that we get to work with for hopefully many years. And our neighborhood and our guests and the people who live there. And I just can't wait. I, I, I totally believe that every restaurant is a family and I can't wait to meet our family. At this time, we don't know what the mayor's house will ultimately become. Our plans are on hold just like everybody else. And we have to see what the economy is like and what the market is like and what social distancing requires and everything when this ends. Of all the cities that I've gotten to open restaurants in, and this is New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and the places I've been able to work, being in the restaurant business has been such a great way to experience these cities and these communities. I feel very lucky that we got to do this in Dallas, and I really look forward to figuring out what the mayor's house needs to be after the pandemic is over. Well, that's our show, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to While We Were Waiting. And thank you to our guest, Pierre Larson, General Manager of Bargello Restaurant and District 42 for the Mandera Hospitality Group in Asheville, North Carolina. You can find out more about them on their website at manderahospitalitygroup.com. You can find us at whilewewerewaitingpodcast.com and also on Insta and Facebook at Waiting Podcast and Twitter at Waiting underscore Podcast. Also, if you're like me and need some visuals to connect to the stories that we told today, we have some of those up on our website under episode pictures. Go check it out. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. And if you'd like to share your stories with us, we definitely want to hear from you. 
just shoot us an email at stories at while we were waiting podcast.com. Until we meet again, stay home, stay healthy, stay sane. Take care, everyone. Soaring ever